0: Once again, my code for ten percent off is Ryan Ten. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Ladies and gentlemen, today on An Actor Despairs, we have a super exciting episode with the incredible, the talented Andy Horowitz. Andy is a producer and the executive vice president at Atlas Entertainment. They produce films like The Dark Knight, Triple Frontier, The Suicide Squad films... And I'm so excited to have him on and talk about his journey, about how it is getting things made. He started at the very bottom and worked his way to where he is now, and it is a coup, and I am so fucking proud of you, brother. You're incredible. You're truly an artist. I mean, you do the thing that we all want to do, and that's get movies made, and I'm so grateful for that. Ladies and gentlemen, here it is. Andy Horowitz, welcome to An actor's affairs. How are you doing, brother?
1: I'm good. Thanks for having me. And Dude, thanks for taking the time on this holiday. Are weekend. you
0: kidding me? Thank you, man. I mean, I I do have to say it's our uh, our brother Simon Birch that connected us, and we yeah. we, we love him, man. And and then I I had the chance to speak with you before this, and just kind of gets to get to know you dude. And you're a total bro. And I feel like I've fucking known you for years and <laughs> you're a goddamn legend. Your resume is insane of all the things you've produced and gotten made. And you, we were joking like the other day that like your first PA or you were assisting was on the dark night. You know what I mean? Isn't that yeah, nuts?
1: Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't a bad start. You know, I will say in terms of uh, how I got going, but yeah, I listened to the, the Simon podcast and I got to say I've known Simon for god probably over a decade now and i learned a shitload about oh him, was it good I how did i do it yeah i loved it, it was all great. right it all was right great. cool yeah I, I never know say, like i said it, the, the best thing was like i said i've known simon forever and i learned a whole lot about him which was really cool to know a guy that long and still not know all that stuff and oh, be able to learn about it from your podcast so
0: yeah oh, dude that's only part one i'm like still trying to edit part two because it's I just bet, like yeah. it's a behemoth of a beast he's, but
1: he's had he, an incredible life i mean honestly he's, he's been on an amazing journey and
0: uh, I don't great, know if we have to uh, cut this some. or we talk about it now, but are 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 you you're part of his doc, right?
1: We've been we've been helping him work on it. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, we've been really slowly but surely, kind of building it very slowly and trying to figure out the best way to do it. You know, with no money
0: because we're yeah. just kind of doing it. And and there's like isn't there a hundred thousand hours of source material? Yeah,
1: yeah so Ugh. it's a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a wealth you know it's a it's a high class problem i guess you can call it where you've got so much stuff that i think filtering through it all and going through it is is becoming the challenge but you know we started to talk about it last year and then of course covid was happening and so it was just impossible to kind of send crews around the world and start shooting stuff and you know he's just been on an amazing journey that i think will will help a lot of people if they get to hear his story and that the fact that he's hasn't given up and he's still pushing that boulder up the hill every day and uh, and slowly was surely making his way there, you know, when I when I heard about it and he was telling me about what was going on, it was really for me, it was like I was like, this story is inspiring to people, you know, because yeah. this business, especially in so many businesses around the world, you know, you fail more often than you succeed, you know, and it's all about failures. And, yeah. and to be able to pick yourself up and keep pushing and pushing that boulder up the hill every day when you just keep running into walls that keep trying to push it back down on you. You know, for him, for what he's been through and, and the fact that he's still marching along and, and crushing it and doing his thing is um, it's really inspiring. He's
0: the future, man. And, and I'm so yeah. excited for him and I'm so fucking excited for you. So let's talk <laughs> about you. You know, I, yeah. I created this podcast to have any kind of guest that's in entertainment. And I've had casting directors, I've had managers, I've had one producer, Jane Rosenthal, who I'm sure, you know, and um, yeah. uh. But, you know, mostly a lot of actors and, and I, I, I really want to have producers more and I'm so excited to fucking talk to you because your resume is insane <laughs> and we're going to dig into that. But, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not natural to me to understand, you know, and I think any actor or non-actor listening right now doesn't really understand how producing works. So if it's cool, I'd love to dig into all that. But before we do yeah. any of that, let's start at the very beginning. Where did you grow up?
1: Yeah, so I grew up uh, in a little suburb outside of LA called Agora Hills, and oh, so Agora Hills, Hills is Hills like, the best.
0: That's yeah, where like Kanye so, lives now, right?
1: It, Calabasas, yeah, which is, yeah, which is funny enough like, where I live now. I never thought I would be living so close to home this early in my life, but oh, wow. but um, but yeah, so we moved out to Calabasas about two years ago, and and I love it out here. But yeah, I grew up in Agora Hills, which is like I said, it's about forty five minutes outside of LA. For those that don't know it, um, it's uh it's a great little suburb. Went it's to like two-thirds school. the way to Ventura,
0: right? Or
1: Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah. So, it's, yeah. So, so it's like Calabasas, Agora Hills, Westlake Village, Thousand Oaks, Camarillo, Ventura. So it's like – I'd say it's about a half an hour uh, uh, on the uh, – before Ventura.
0: Yeah. Got it. That's awesome.
1: So um, – did I lose you there? Are you there? Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. It's back so,
1: now. um, so yeah, so I grew up there, you know, it's, it's sort of, and, and people know Agora Hills because it's essentially the exit off the one one that people get off to go to the beach. So yeah. it's a Canaan, Canaan road, which is the exit that will take you straight to the beach from there. Um, and so, yeah, so I grew up in Agora Hills. I grew up in, you know, kind of a crazy, uh, not crazy, but, but an interesting dynamic. You know, I, I had a, a dad who was in the entertainment business. And so he was, Uh, Always working in uh, television. So he was a television producer, but more so on the physical production side. So less on the creative side. So he was more of sort of nuts and bolts producer. Like transportation or? No, more of sort of line producing stuff. Oh, okay. Getting budgets acquired. Budget management, managing the the physical production of a a shoot and, and was always on that side of it. But um, you know, and he was he started off. That's doing why some I used to call things. my
0: cocaine dealer, my line producer. <laughs> Your line <laughs> producer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: So so he um he did some great shows when I was a kid, and one of the ones that he worked on forever, which was the show called Unsolved Mysteries, which was obviously became a big hit. And um, you know, he got nominated for an Emmy for that. And so I I grew up in seeing having a dad as a producer, you know. Yeah. And it was always something that I knew I wanted to do. I always had this like weird skill set for bringing people together and kind of problem solving and always keeping a cool head on my shoulders and never sort of panicking. And, you know, I grew up with a bunch of friends that we were sort of like the skater, surfer, punk rock kids of the school, you know, and we, I spent most of my weekends surfing or skateboarding or running around town causing trouble. Um, And when I was like, God, I think I was probably, going back a little bit. So I was like eight years. I have two brothers as well. I'm a middle child.
0: Oh, wow. Okay.
1: Yeah. So I have a younger brother who's four years younger than me. And then I have an older brother who's only 13 months older than me. Either in the
0: industry or no?
1: Uh, My older brother's a screenwriter. Oh, Oh, uh, right,
0: right, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So my older brother's a screenwriter and my younger brother is um, living up North actually and uh, working in restaurants and, and doing his own thing up there. And he's just got engaged and He's got a um, a son that that he's got up there too, and so amazing. It's the farthest he's ever lived away from us, which is which has always been strange because we've been really close. Our, our sort of our little tripod of brothers, yeah. um, my whole life. But um, but yeah, when I was when I was like eight years old, um, my dad came out of the closet, and so as a as a young kid, you know, with two brothers, to to have that happen, you know, this is probably like 1990, you know, so before. Wow. It was well accepted, you know, and to sort of have and right after the gay
0: men's health crisis, you know. Yeah,
1: exactly. This was like ninety ninety one, and you know, I will say, like, my family was the best. You know, my my mom and my dad handled it amazingly well. Um, You know, obviously there was a divorce at that time, and so my mom sort of became a single mom, even though my dad was always around. He was a super supportive. He was always there if we needed him, but he lived in Burbank, and we lived in Agoura Hills, and so. I was primarily raised kind of day to day from my mom. And my mom was, you know, she was one of those moms that like our house was like the party house, you know, like she would always, she was, she always had that mentality of, you know, I'd rather you guys be here and getting in trouble than sort of out on the town. Be safe and smart
0: versus like, yeah, I told my dad was the same. That's the best.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And she was great. I mean, she was that kind of mom that would drive me to go surf every day when I was a kid. And she would, we were like 12 and 13 years old and she was driving us down to Hollywood to see punk rock shows at like 13 years old and we were this is like right when blink 182 was coming up right after cheshire cat and and so we were kind of in the ska scene and like we were just like these real kids big
0: fish that, and oh yeah yes yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. i mean the first punk rock show i ever went to was was blink 182 real big fish and goldfinger at the troubadour
0: no uh, way oh god yeah, and the it was that,
1: that was probably like God, that was probably like 96 maybe, 95, 96. That was like in, right you know, before
0: the whole warp Tour phenomenon started. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So, so that's how you grew up, you know, and it was a, it was a great upbringing, you know. Well, but Talk talk to me,
0: you know, because I think, yeah. you know, for so many people listening, you know, I, I live in New York city and have for the past 13 years, they don't get yeah. to live. A lot of them don't get to live in LA or New York. And yeah. I love talking to people that grew up in those cities because like yeah. most people that end up in entertainment, not even actors move to an LA or New York. And yeah. I'm always curious for the people that do grew up in those cities it goes one or two ways. You love the culture because, like, especially in LA, more so than New York. You know, in, in yeah. New York, you can escape the business, but in LA, you can't escape it. Even if you're not, your parents aren't in it. It's your. It's yeah. there's a grip truck somewhere. You know, there's a studio. Yeah. Your 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 kid in home rooms going to be an extra. You know, like, did you like? My question is twofold. Did you like living in LA and having a parent in the business? Did you have a positive idea of the business or were you like, fuck that? I want nothing to do with that.
1: No, I did. I mean, first of all, I loved living in LA and I I will always, I say this now and it's probably true. I will always live in LA, you know, I just love it here. I do, you know, and, and as a kid as well, being a snowboarder, surfer, skater, there was nowhere better to live. You know, there were days where like we would fuck around when we were in high school and we would, we would hit the surf in the morning at like 7am you know, go on a skateboarding session, then drive up to mountain high and go snowboarding. I like, can oh, like, the hit them all dude. in one day. Yeah. And it was, you know, so we would do that every now and then. And it was, there's no other place in the world you can do that. You know, being in LA, you've got the beaches, you've got the deserts, you've got the mountains, you know, you've got LA, what LA is. And it just, it just is a place that I've, I've just loved, never gotten sick of it. Yes, yeah. of course, there's traffic. You know, it gets annoying. There's annoying parts of LA, but let's be real. You know, there's annoying parts of every city that you're yeah. I don't think every any city's perfect. No. So um so I've loved it, you know, and I will say it never it never got annoying for me as a kid, sort of growing up kind of in the film business, or at least on the outskirts of it. Um, you know, I, I had my bar mitzvah on the universal lot, you know, on no way in the universal lot, yeah. So Which like, which you know, stage? I, I don't honestly do not remember. It was so long ago, but I do remember that it was on the Universal backlot, and and it was cool, and we had taken over a stage, and and um, so I, you know I never got annoyed by the film business because it was always something that you know it, it was like I said I grew up in it, and I had a grandfather, um, my grandfather who's still alive uh, was in the super indie side of the film business, so like you know films that would cost like. Three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars, and was a part of that business for a long time. So, as a little kid, you know, he would take me to the American Film Market, and I would walk around with him as a little kid and see all these crazy posters for these movies that haven't been made yet. And it gave me a really good understanding of of the foreign sales side of the business and the independent film side of the business. Um, and sort of, it was just like I said, it's just something that I
0: I grew up in. And so you had a film school de facto education, but just by growing up. In, in sort of yeah. yeah i mean
1: like but it was but but both my father and my grandfather both worked in parts of the business that i didn't want to work in you know so i didn't want to do television and you, and you and, knew that yeah and i knew That's that i didn't huge. want to do television and i didn't want to do tiny little independent films that no one would ever see you know things that were like these little B horror movies that would cost 500 grand and this was you know when my grandfather was doing those this was like sort of it, the boom of the foreign sales model, so so you
0: with know, this, would this like eighties like like and nineties, like a, I guess I am you know because I'm I'm born nineteen ninety. I guess like would Blair Witch yeah. be an example of that? It or? was way before that. Yeah, yeah way, it, way before it. that. But that's yeah. definitely
1: the size of those movies. And you so, you know, I um I just loved it. I just loved like seeing what my dad was doing on set and being on set. And and for me. It was always there was never anything else for me right i didn't have like i didn't want to be i didn't I had no goals no aspirations to do anything else except the film business and i hey. knew that like from a young age i set my sights on that and like that's where i'm going and there was i didn't it was like tunnel vision like this is the only thing for me this is all i'm gonna do and you know as a kid growing up especially with my older brother you know we would make home movies all the time and and he would write them and direct them and i would put them together for him and so We've just been doing it since we were little kids, you know, and and it was something that we always always dreamed of, sort of finally getting a real ch- a real shot to do it in the real world, and uh, and we've we've kind of done it, you know. It's cool.
0: I I'd love for you to expound on that because I find that yeah. fascinating because you know. I also had the same experience when I was young, but for me, it's much darker wanting to be an actor because, you know, it's even if your parents are in the business, it's a, it's a life filled with peril. And uh, I'm curious for you, you know, being in LA and being surrounded by it, the filmmaking or the acting bug, those were never ever like your screenwriting. Even that was never an interest of yours. No, it was
1: really strange. Cause for me, I'm the kind of person that likes to, sort of touch everything and be a part of everything, yeah. right? So I never wanted to be someone that, you know, wrote a script, handed it off, and hoped that the movie came out well, right? right? So I never wanted to be someone that came on to direct a film and was there after the script existed, directed the film, then handed it off to your distributor and was like, "I hope, go with God, I hope it's going to work. So for me as a producer, you know, I got to, I, I had a really good understanding of what producers did. And I wanted to be the person that helped come up with the idea, found the writer to write it, wrote, got, developed the screenplay, found the filmmaker, put the cast together, you know, find our financing, go make the movie, be a part of all of post-production. When the movie's done, yeah. get to be a part of the marketing campaign and be able to mold the marketing campaigns and be able to understand the distribution plan, you know, and then sort of take the movie from, from an idea all the way to the theatrical experience, hopefully, or now the streaming experience. And beyond you know if there's dvds if there's sequels so for me it was always a it was always sort of a no-brainer it's it's what i wanted to do i wanted to be a part of the whole thing not just sort of come in and bounce out and hope that other people can take it the rest of the way i'm sort of one of those people that you know when i i guess like a pit bull, it's like you grab onto something and like you don't want to let go until you're all the way to the very end and and so that to me is was sort of always my mentality with everything that i was doing in my life whether it was surfing skating snowboarding you know and so I just sort of took that same mentality and brought it into the the producerial filmmaking world. And, and it's been working.
0: <laughs> I, I I love that. And it's so beautiful. Right. And I, I don't want to get too psychoanalytical here, but I, you know, yeah. it's an interesting question because a reoccurring theme on this podcast is, is finding your voice and for music yeah. it's finding your tone or your style and for produ- producing, it's finding the right content, the right writing, the right tone, the right app. I mean, it's all of it and I'm yeah. curious for you because I, I do, I, I do see you as an artist. You are, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you, if anything, you're, you know, that phantom intersection of art and commerce, you're the one that makes it work and make yeah. sure that art is always, you know, the down. And I, that's why I love your career. And I wanted to talk to you, but I'm, you know, having this beautiful experience and very brave of your father, you know, Literally coming out and finding himself and announcing who he is to the world, do you think consciously or subconsciously that forced you to kind of find your voice sooner than others might have?
1: I think so. I mean, I definitely, it definitely um, helped, you know, as a kid, you know, when you're a kid, and you know, I had two brothers, and luckily we were all a very tight knit unit, you know, so we sort of helped you know kids are cruel and and so like when you're a kid and you know that like another kid has a dad that just came out of the closet that's gay back then in the early 90s you know kids can be real fucking assholes about yeah, that dude. and oh, and as a kid it would always make you really self-conscious and so I and think the
0: bullying stuff we have now it didn't exist then it was just like get tougher kid yeah, you know what I yeah, mean it was in real life yeah. it was in
1: real life and you know the great thing about my brothers and I and and all of my friends from You know, elementary school, middle school and high school who I still talk to to this day. You know, I have this wild group of like 12 guys, 15 maybe of us that I grew up from first grade all the way through high school. And we still hang out all the time. You know, we still talk to each other all the time. And I just had this great group of guys. And we were sort of the people that, you know, by the time we got old enough, you know, people stopped picking on us because we had a big enough group of friends that it sort of didn't become a thing anymore. But when we were little kids, you know, in middle school and high school, it was definitely a thing, and I think it it helped, sort of gave us it kind of gave us a chip on our shoulders a little bit, and we yeah. we had something to prove. You know, we yeah. wanted to show people that that um, you know, a we were always preaching to kids, you know, if your parents are like this or your siblings, you know, come out of the closet or they're gay, it's like who cares? You know, yeah. like it was like that we were always, it, ne- it was never a big deal to us. Like yeah. even when my dad told us about it and I remember the conversation, you know, when I was like eight or nine years old, I think he assumed that like, we were going to really sort of have a negative reaction to it. And our reactions were all like, well, that's okay. You know, like you yeah. are who you are. and And that was always something that we were always preaching in high school is acceptance for everything that we were doing. And it was really how we lived our lives. And it came from experiencing that as a kid and and going through that as kids, like I said, it wasn't easy. You know, it wasn't easy on my mom for a bit after it happened and there's just a a lot. And so what I think it did is it just sort of, it, it created this, it lit this fire in us that we're like, listen, like we're going to, we're going to, so we've got something to prove now. And we're going to show people that, you know, there was a lot of, I remember this back in the day, you know, we had, you know, when you're eight or nine years old, you've got friends. And then you're, of course, your parents become friends, right? Yeah. Because like you're hanging their little kids. And I remember my my parents' friends, some of them like, like not being friends with them anymore after this whole thing happened. And I remember a lot of them God. were telling my parents, like your kids are going to be fucked up. You realize that like you're going to fuck up your kids because they're going through this. And it's not normal for kids to go through this at this young as an age. And I remember hearing that, you know, with my parents arguing with their friends and just hearing things off. And there were friends of theirs that, that no longer were friends of theirs anymore. And I always held that in the back of my head, that like, oh, people think that we're going to be fucked up. We're going to show you that I'm going to show you that that's going to be the complete opposite. You know, and my brothers and I have been amazing, you know, and we've all turned into to great adults. And a lot of those parents, you know, their kids, where they were raised in a traditional environment, you know, they didn't end up in, in the greatest places. And I've seen sort of what's happened to a lot of those people. And, totally. you know, it was, a, it was a really, it was a wild upbringing, but but I wouldn't trade it in for anything at this point. You know, I think it really made us the people that we are today. And like I said, my parents have been fucking amazing. You know, my dad is one of my favorite people in the world. He's always been part of my life forever. He's been an amazing dad and my mom as well, even though all that, you know, it was tough for her at first, but she raised three boys, you know, three little assholes, you know, on their own that were always running around town causing trouble and, and did a great job with it. But I do. I, it's weird. I always had that drive in the back of my head going. People were telling my parents they're going to fuck up their kids. And I'm going to tell I'm going to show them that, like, boy, are they wrong? You yeah. know, and I think if you look at it,
0: boy, did like,
1: you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So
0: like,
1: I, it really drove me. It really Is did. your dad still with us? Oh yeah! yeah oh, amazing. shout out uh,
0: Papa Horowitz, man! You yeah, got to give him runs, some love.
1: Uh, yeah, he's amazing. I mean, he runs production on this show called The Talk, which is on CBS. Oh so
0: yeah, I that know that The Talk. For, yeah,
1: yeah. And so he's been on that show for God, I think five or six years now, at least. And um, he just got married last year, and so like we went, we went to his wedding with his partner, and it was, it was amazing. It's been, it's been great to see um, how great he's been doing. And he's, you know, he's he survived cancer. He's a cancer survivor. I mean, he's been through a ton in his life as well. And it's just been a great inspiration for for all my brothers and I to to show it, you know, show us how it's done.
0: So I'm I'm curious then, you know, growing up in Calabasas, you know, I know what is what are the big arts high, like Crossroads? Isn't that a big high arts high school? Did you go to one of those, or did you? No,
1: not? I to public school. I
0: was oh, public me too, dude. So, nice. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: So I went to I went to Agora High School in Agora Hills, California, which is a public school, and it's a great public school. You know, yeah. so it was part of it was part of the reason why. My wife and I moved out to Calabasas 2 years ago it's cuz you know we eventually probably want to have kids soon and and the public schools are fucking great out here and I yeah. you know I know a lot of people that went to private schools and I never was that person and I got to be honest if I ever have kids I don't really want to raise
0: them that way. Me either, dude. Thank you for talk. saying that. Yeah. I, it's yeah. it's, I mean, call blue collar, but it's a real point of pride for me, you know? Well, especially yeah. these
1: days, I think if you grow up, you know, you raise your kids going to private schools that they're all they know are rich, privileged kids.
0: With drivers and it's just a different, yeah, you know? Yeah, it, you
1: come out of that situation with a very, very different mindset. And I think – you know, putting your kids through, like I said, the public schools out in the Los Virginis Unified School District, which is Agora Hills, Calabasas, Westlake, um, you know, they're great public schools, but they are public schools. And so you get to, like, I want my kids to grow up with, you know, people of all shapes, sizes, colors, you know, demographic, like that, that's, that's how I want my kids to grow up. Cause that's how I grew up. And yeah. so, you know, I just, that, that's part of the reason why I moved out here. And, and, but yeah, I was a public school grad. I graduated high school in 2002.
0: I love that, man. I'm I'm 2008. So, you know, let's, let's, you know, let's paint the landscape here just for, for, for the film history, you know, not to get all Tarantino, but you know, from like the twenties to the fifties where you know, more developmental films starting from, you know, silence, moving into the talkies where then, you know, awesome films got made like the lost weekend and days of wine and roses and the movie star phenomenon starts to happen. And then, You know, a lot of film theorists argue the 70s is, you know, the 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 pinnacle decade of American filmmaking. And in the eighties is, you know, Top Gun is starting to be the blockbuster, you know, and that starts changing things and Days of Thunders and those kind of mission impossible movies start to get made. And then in the mid-90s. There's a great book I love for anyone listening who's a fucking nerd like me called Rebels on the Backlot, and you know it analyzes Tarantino and and Fincher and, and uh, three others that I'm I'm, gonna, I'm too nervous to even remember right now. But basically, <laughs> the you know the mid '90s to early late '90s, you know indie filmmaking, Sex Lies and Videos Tape, Reservoir Dogs, and those kind of things. So for you, Andy, just as as a human and as a film lover what was the content you were consuming in high school and like, where was like your taste making abilities trending towards?
1: I mean, we, when I, when I was a kid, not a kid, but I like guess a young teen, you know, we grew up on movies like, uh, like kids, you know, oh, American Harmony, history. American His, the best. Know, yeah. Ameri- yeah. American history X. Um, you know, I was obs- always obsessed with point break, you know, like yeah. those were like, that's what the, those are the kind of films, but like, if you talk about the end in- of more independent films, those are kind of the movies that that I think had the biggest impression on us as as young kids. You know, and I remember the movie kids like scared the shit out of me, blew my mind. Like it was just like one of those things that I had never you know, it was one of those films that we all watched as sort of 13, 14, 15 year olds and and learned a lot from it, you know. Yeah. Like we really did. And I think what to do and what not to do as, as a young person but um, but yeah, I mean I, I very much grew up in that world. We grew up, you know, I grew up in a world where when Robert Rodriguez was making, you know, El Mariachi and Yeah. And he was kind of one of the other ones. Songs. That's
0: right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, when he was making movies for 25, 30 grand. And so, you know, back then, like that was that was what my brother and I were always aiming to do. You know, it was like we wanted to just start it up, do our own thing and and create our own world. And, you know, but it became it, it, it was hard to do, you know, those are hard and it's hard to make movies like that. And you got to remember back then there was no way for people to see your movies. The Internet yeah. wasn't a thing yet. So, you know, there wasn't like you make a movie and put it on the Internet and you can get a bunch of views and get some attention. Back then, you make a movie and, like, where the fuck do you go with it? You know, you yeah, know, like, there's no, it was, it move. was,
0: it was festival. And if you got distribution, great. And if you didn't, nobody saw it pretty much, yeah, right? That was yeah, it. That yeah, was
1: it. so you know, those success stories, you know, and and um, you know, back in the day, there's this, I don't know if you ever saw Boondock Saints, but like Troy, yeah, Duff, I love Boondock, Boondock Saints. Saints, yeah. I was just you know, watching Dafoe
0: the scene on YouTube before uh, it's this, so yeah. good, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It, it's so good, so. You know, those are always the kinds of things that we wanted to do, but I never knew really how to do it. And so when when I graduated high school, um, my brother, like I said, he's 14 months older than me. So he had graduated two years before I did. You know, he went to Santa Barbara City College because he knew he wanted to go to USC, but USC was, what, $55,000 a year or something. It was crazy. And so he was More like- than that now, to man.
0: 70- Yeah. Oh,
1: I know. And so he went up to Santa Barbara City College and got all his general eds done and then transferred to USC and, and went to USC film school. And he went that route. And so when I graduated high school, I essentially followed his path. So I went to Santa Barbara City College and got all my general eds done there. And Santa Barbara City College is like one of the nicest junior colleges you'll ever see in your life. I mean, it's literally- on the beach. I yeah. mean, I'm not joking. Like sitting out I remember sitting in math and like, you know, you're just it's all ocean view, you know, from your math class and like or from whatever class you were in. It was it was amazing and I loved living in Santa Barbara because the surf was so good up there and it was, yeah. was just having a blast. And so when I was graduating City College, my older brother was graduating USC. And so that was my path. You know, I had applied to USC and I had gotten in there and I was going to go that path, the same path he did. And he literally called me up one day and he goes, "Listen, You know, I know you well enough to know that like you're going to fucking hate living in downtown L.A. It's not your thing. You know, this is a business where it doesn't really matter where you went to film school. It just doesn't. You know, so if you like living in Santa Barbara, see if you can find a film school up there. I I would encourage you to do that. You'll like it up there more. So I did. And I found this little tiny private art school called the Brooks Institute of Photography. That was a uh, one of the best photography schools in the world. But their film school was only about eight years old when I had gone there. So, and I got to keep living in Santa Barbara and surfing every day and go to film school. And so I, I did that, you know, it was a quarter of the price of USC and, yeah. and I, I'm jealous. i was
0: quarter million dollars in debt thanks nyu you piece of (laughs) shit
1: (laughs) i mean it's a you know film school obviously works for some people and some people it doesn't and uh, i went for acting
0: even worse (laughs) yeah it's tough yeah Yeah. it's
1: it's a tough one but uh but yeah so when i was in film school it was like i was like a kid in a candy store you know the the film school had all its stages and they had for for those listening how,
0: how did you discover brooks
1: I just was look, I mean, I always knew about the photography school. I always knew there was this photography school called Brooks because when I was in high school, I was into photography as well and and I was taking photography classes, and Brooks was sort of like the pinnacle of photography schools, you know it's Got where it. some of the most amazing photographers went, and so I always knew that was in Santa Barbara and it was very close to where I was living, and I just started i don't know someone I can't remember who told me, but someone told me you know they have a film school, and I go really that's that's cool and so but it was new you know and it was the kind of film school that you really only get out of it what you put into it so you're going to get nothing out of it if you kind of just have ass and expect that you're just going to get through it because it was it was very sort of it was very low emphasis on like general ed classes and they didn't really care too much about that they knew that everyone wanted to be film schools and so the great thing and the reason that i loved about it is that i got to take all the classes so i took directing and editing and cinematography and screenwriting and because they didn't have a producing class you know that wasn't a class they had there so i got to take all these classes knowing that i was going to be a producer and and i always tell people that you're not going to be a good producer if you don't understand everyone else's jobs as well totally you you can't there's no way that you can be micromanaging managing a film set having no clue how to talk the talk and walk the walk with all of your department heads on on set and so it's really sort of where i learned so much of You know, my my terminology and understanding of, you know, especially the camera department in terms of, you know, how lighting works and and how cameras work and filters and lenses and all of that kind of stuff was, was amazing. So what I did when I was in film school was I sort of took you know, a page out of those guys, those filmmakers that you mentioned's book, you know, when they were making these kinds of movies in the 90s. And I just said, like, I'm going to make as many fucking things as I possibly can because I have all these resources and I don't have to spend money because they have all this gear at the film school. And so I just found, like, certain people that were writers and directors and I just produced everyone's movies. And so I was producing everyone's short films. I was making, like, six or seven short films. You mean everyone at Brooks? Everyone at Brooks, yeah. So I became sort of like the producer you know, extraordinaire at Brooks. And yeah. so I was like I had everyone coming to me. And I did two thesis films at once. And it was a I was, you know, I will say I had a very inflated s- sense of who I was as a producer, right? Because at that point you're a film school student. So You've got like all these people coming to you to produce their movies. Yeah. You're not making any money, right? There's no money to be made on it, but you're just doing it and and one little film that I uh, produced in film school made it into Sundance. And so I had a Sundance film in film school and we got to go to Sundance and that was really cool. And and then I graduated film school thinking, fuck, I'm going to be the same person I was in film school outside of film school. Everyone's going to come to me. want me." To My phone's going to be ringing. Yeah. And, uh, and, and boy, was I wrong. You know, like it was that kind of situation where, you know, I, I graduated film school and I got I moved back down to Hollywood. And I had this really shitty apartment with this horrible roommate that I had met on Craigslist. And I was like, did you ever do
0: internships or no?
1: No. So I okay. never did an internship, but what I did do while I was in film school that helped is that on the weekends um, I would drive down to LA and I would PA. So I would PA
0: on I'll
1: music see, tons videos. Tons of set
0: experience.
1: Tons. Yeah. So I had yeah. tons of set experience. So I had PA'd in uh, music videos, little independent films, reality tv shows whoever would hire me for a day you know i'd make 80 to 90 bucks a day and like you had was, to make money amazing. yeah yeah well that's what i was doing on the weekends i had a day job when i was in film school as well and i managed the local video store and so a blog buster, like, or? no it was called salzer's video which is still there to this day which is amazing it was that's a, so rare. actually a it was actually a record store that was very reminiscent of like the movie empire records and so i started working there uh and then when they found out i was in film school they transferred me across the street to the video store and i became the video store manager for for two years there and it was fucking amazing i mean i got to watch every single thing it was like that was like my my critical studies in film degree just by working there because i just watched everything and you know movies i would have never watched i was watching movies all day i was taking movies home and it was it was great. I mean, I loved working at the video store. I just did. You know, it was such a meet. cool yeah. experience. Yeah. And and you know the wild thing. And I told my wife we had an amazing moment a few years ago because my goal working at the video store was like one day I'm going to have my movies on this wall. You know, like yeah. the, something that I've produced on this wall. And three years ago we went. Uh, we were driving up to Santa Barbara and we stopped at that video store. And so I I posted a photo years ago on my Instagram of like I found American Hustle Suicide Squad. And this little film called Hollow Point, all on the wall in the video no store. And so I was like, okay, it was a very nice full circle moment of like, you know,
0: thirteen years. Did you did you tell them like, like, yo, I used to work here, or you didn't? I want did, to... but it was oh, like yeah.
1: some, you know, seven. Uh, he was, like, was I, like, whatever, dude. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, I yeah, but it
1: was such a cool moment, you know, yeah. to have films that I
0: pretty you did it, bro. That's there. awesome. Yeah, Thank you so, for sharing that. I appreciate
1: yeah, it. Yeah, so so going back, you know, I graduated film school and I moved to L.A. and I couldn't get a job to save my life. You know, I, I was sending and out
0: – And just to paint it, if you don't mind, what year are we yeah. talking here?
1: So this is 2000 – this is the very beginning of
0: 2007. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so I netflix re- being a content you know maker, yeah. right, so as netflix YouTube's is just, becoming a thing. Yeah,
1: exactly right. So I graduated film school in December of 2006, moved straight down to L.A., um, and I spent pretty much between January and March just sending out resumes, you know, yeah. to every producer job, every producer assistant job that I could find. I knew I wanted to work for a producer because I knew that, yeah, I produced a bunch of shit in film school, but that did not anywhere
0: near qualify me. The to Sundance thing, did, they like didn't film. like incubate you with anyone or? No, because
1: it was like a tiny little six minute movie. I mean, Got it was it. like, it was just, it didn't make sense at all. Got it. And, you know, so. So I, I, I spent two months doing that, and I I didn't – not only did I not get an interview, I didn't even get a phone call back or an email back, like literally nothing. No one – couldn't get anyone to pick up my, phone, up my calls. No one was returning my emails. I couldn't get an interview to save my life. And so I remember when I was in film school, everyone kept saying, you know, what you need to do is just reach out to someone that you know in the business. And so what I did was I called a buddy I went to high school with who uh, was this guy named Chris Osbrink, and he was – the assistant for a director named Pete Siegel at the time. And, you know, Pete Siegel had done like Black Sheep and he done like a, a bunch of great comedies in the yeah. past. And and Chris said, hey, I think, you know, they were about to start this movie called Get Smart. they were about to start prep on this movie I called Get that. Smart with Steve Carell. And so he said, you know, I think our producer, this guy, Charles Roven, might be looking for a new assistant. I'll give them your resume for you. And so I said, great, you know, that would be really helpful. Um, I didn't know who Chuck was at that time, but of course I went on IMDb and I was like, holy shit, you know, he's produced some of my favorite movies. Everything, yeah. Three Kings and 12 Monkeys and he'd done Batman Begins before that and just City of Angels and just so much great stuff. And I I forgot Batman
0: Begins had already come out. That was 2005.
1: Fuck. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Batman Begins had already come out and – you know, I, he was the kind of producer I was like, okay, that's what I want to be doing. You know, he had produced the, the Scooby-Doo movies. He had produced the first Batman movie. He had produced, you know, like I said, movies like 12 Monkeys
0: and Three Kings. And just done, like, you know a bunch done a of property stuff smart and well and, and not, totally, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah and, and so I was like, okay, that's what I want to be doing. And so um, it was the very first interview that I got was at Atlas Entertainment in, you know, at the very end of February 2007. And I remember, you know, it was the first interview that I got, and I go there, and I'm sitting in the lobby, and I'm 23 years old, and I, had, you know, fresh out of film school, and I remember sitting in the lobby, and I'm wearing, like, kind of a casual button-down shirt, and I'm sitting next to, like, two other guys that are wearing suits that are, like, way older than me, and those are two other guys that are interviewing for the same job. And I remember thinking to myself, like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, they're going to laugh you out of this, yeah. my, I just, I mean, I was coming from the video store pretty much, you know, like that. Yeah, was and
0: surfing sense. and yeah, skating. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And so, you know, and I'd done a bunch of PA work, but I'd never been an assistant to a high level person. I'd never done anything like that before. And so, you know, I go in there and I meet with his assistants. And I think the part of the reason why I did so well is because I convinced myself before I went in that I wasn't getting this job. So it was like, okay, let's just Ugh. let's just yeah, nothing to, to in lose. In yeah, yeah. I was like, let's yeah. just get an interview in the book. I'm just going to get one in, and hopefully, the things will start to pick up from there. And so they started to ask me questions about, um, you know, my experience level, and they started to ask me, you know, have you done this and have you done that, and you know, have you rolled calls before, and have you ever booked, you know, private planes for people before, and crazy high level travel. And honestly, like, I just fucking lied my face off and i was like yeah i can do that and i've done that and i've done this yeah i know how to do that i had no clue what half of that stuff even meant but i just said yes to everything and because i knew that if i said no to one thing then they're just gonna hire someone else that that would say yes to that and i also knew that i was smart enough that like if i got the job i'll figure this shit out you know like i was i had enough resources i was smart enough i was like i I was and you wanted it badly enough and i really wanted it Yeah. yeah and i really wanted it so you know, sure enough, uh, two weeks go by. I didn't think I got the job. When I get a call one day, it was like a Sunday.
0: Oh, so you let it like, go. Hey. You, you, two yeah, weeks. Yeah, I kind of moved yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, I kind of
1: moved on and, and thought I was it. And I get a call on a Sunday and it's like, hey, Chuck's in town and he wants to meet you. And, um, and I was like, great. So I go to his house on a Sunday and it's pretty fucking intimidating, you know, this going to this big house. And I remember when I'm walking in, there's a guy walking out. So I'm like, okay, I'm not the only person that he's meeting for this job. And so I sat down across from Chuck and he spent like the next 45 minutes just convincing me why why I didn't want the job, you know, why that if I took the job, that my life as I knew it would sort of come to an end and my new life working for him would start. Meaning that like, you know, anything that I thought was important in my life, surfing, vacations, family, roommates, friends, all of that would have to come secondary to my job working for him. You know, that's kind of how he positioned it. And I'll, I got to be honest, I think the reason he hired me is because I literally said to him, like, that's exactly what I want right now. You know, I don't have a girlfriend right now. I have this is I want to put everything in my life into this because this is where I feel like I want to start my career and get going. And so he hired me. I mean, literally like insane. And the funniest thing was that when he hired me, he didn't have any references to call. So he called my stoner hippie manager of the video store. And it's like, that was the reference that got me the yeah, job. By putting
0: it, did you put it as a video store or you put it as like CAA or something?
1: No, I put the video. I was like, here's,
0: here's, here's this video. <laughs> it's it's, awesome. it's, you know, <laughs> so
1: you've got Chuck Roven, you know, gigantic movie producer in town, you know, call. And I remember calling my manager. I've been like, listen, this guy, Chuck Roven, is going to call you. Don't fuck this up for me. Like, you know, you're my reference. And so. So he called, sure enough, and checked a reference on me at the video store, and, uh, and he himself out, called Chucked it? yeah,
0: yeah, that's well, so bad. I respect, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So well, you know, he has his assistant call. I got got it, got it, yeah, free, yeah.
0: I, I thought so, yeah. You know? yeah,
1: yeah. But but he talked to her, and and it worked out really well, and and so I got the job, you know, and so now this is. March 5th. Did he ever address the
0: attire? Like, did that ever come up? Like, no. wait, how did I get it? And no. no, that's awesome. No, I mean, he
1: still, he still loves to tell people to this day that he pulled me out of the video store. And I continue to remind him, I'm like, that was a job while I was going to film school. I did tons of PA stuff. Yeah. A lot yeah, of I'm not, that experience. Yeah. Like you didn't just pull me out of the video store, but, but, um, but yeah, so, so I started March of 2007 and I, um, I was like shell shocked when I walked in because I was like, "Wow, this is," you know. Chuck Roven is one of the few, um, you know, big producers, old school producers left in town. That you know, he's a very big, large, intimidating individual, and, and, and uh, more
0: often than yeah. Where, where was your dad and your uncle? Were they giving you advice at this point, or did they not know because this was out no, of their I mean, realm? I,
1: no. No, it was just so far outside of their lanes, right? Because wow. like I said, my dad was in like reality TV at the time. Yeah, just so my diff- grandfather was was retired, and so he was sort of out of the business at the time. So, you know, I didn't Sorry, have any reference. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't have any reference points, you know. But the wild thing is, and this is it was such an, another full circle, amazing moment is when I started at Atlas working for Chuck, and I told my dad like this is the this is where I'm working now, and I got this job, and I'm really excited about it. here's where my office is and he goes you're gonna hear something crazy my first job in the business was in that building when my dad was the assistant to to robert altman my dad was the assistant to robert altman when they were doing the popeye movie and robert robert altman's offices were in the building that atlas is in right now and so my dad's first job in the business was in the same building that my first job in the business was just randomly Wow. and so you know it was it was a crazy crazy moment to to learn that but But yeah, so I started working for Chuck and it was, it was really fucking intense. You know, it was like, this is again, like Google was just becoming a thing. So you couldn't really, the internet wasn't what it is. What's it called? Glassdoor,
0: the website where people leave reviews of like working somewhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I don't know. But like, but we still had like cords connected to our headsets, you know, so we couldn't walk far from the desk and, you know, we filed papers into folders, you know, we would, it was just like. It was an intense, you know, I had two phones, so he could always get a hold of me. So I had a BlackBerry at the time and I had a a regular cell phone with different service plans. So, you know, one was AT&T and one was Verizon. And, you know, working for Chuck at that time was like that job was, you know, if you're if it's Friday night and it's 10 p.m. and you're at a bar with your friends and he calls, it's not I'll call him back in the morning. It's leave the bar. answer the phone and probably have to leave and go deal with something you know or if you're seeing a movie on a Sunday and you're in the middle of a movie and you know your phone rings and it's him it's not I'll call him back after the movie it's like walk out of the theater answer the phone and then probably have to leave and go do something yeah and so that was and you were cool with that or as cool as you could be yeah I was fine because you know like you know at that time it was sort of the busiest that Chuck had ever been at one point in his career so we were in prep when i first started working for him we were in prep on get smart we were in prep on the dark night and we were in post-production on a movie called the bank job and he was just a lot and all of these different productions were in different parts of the world so like the dark Knight was prepping in chicago uh, get smart was prepping in la and the post-production for the bank job was in australia and so it was just it was an intense time and so i had been there for just about two months as the second assistant and the second assistant all I really did was sort of file papers and book travel and listen to everything that was going on with the first assistant. Got it. And so the first assistant and Chuck didn't get along very well. And so it was like from eight o'clock in the morning until eight o'clock at night every day, it was like screaming and yelling. And it was just a very intense environment. And um, and I always had very thick skin, so it never really bothered me. But Chuck was the kind of guy that, and he still sort of is in a sense where, you know, if if you mess up you yeah. he will make it he'll make sure you know that you fucked up you know he will never call you names he will never throw things at you he's not one of those guys at all but he's an intense individual and he raises his voice more often than not and so and he's a big imposing man and so as a little 23 year old kid sort of seeing that being aimed at my first assistant all the time i never really wanted to be in that chair it was always yeah. sort of like the hot seat and i was always sort of safe in my little corner of like book and travel and You know, and at that time, too, you know, and I don't know if all the people listening to the podcast know this, but when you're an assistant for someone in Hollywood, you listen to every phone call, right? So you're on all the calls. And so it was, this was now becoming my grad school. This was me listening to Chuck produce movies all day, every day on on how to talk to people and what to say and problem solving at the highest level. So at like the dark night level at this time. And so, it was a wild experience just to be sitting in the front row of this, you know, to be like, wow, this is my grad school and I'm getting paid. And I was making 500 bucks a week before taxes at the time, you know? And so I was making just enough money to like be able to have this shitty apartment with this weird roommate yeah. and, and everything was going well. And after I was there for about three months, um, my first assistant got fired. And so it was like, it wasn't the kind of firing that's like, let's figure out a transition. It's like, I want you to like, get up and leave right now. And so I remember being like very scared and intimidated. And I remember Chuck looking at me going, I hope you've been paying attention because you're taking over tomorrow. And I took a step back and, you know, my first gut was like, you're you're fucked, you know? And then my second thought was like, okay, this is an opportunity to expedite your career. This is essentially what should have taken me two years to get to that point of being in that hot seat chair. It's been three months and I'm sitting in it right now. And so what I did was, you know, I just sort of decided I'm going to do this and I'm going to put everything in my life to it. And I literally worked, you know, I was there from eight o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night every day. I ate breakfast, lunch and dinner on that desk for two years straight, you know, and didn't didn't leave. And I ran his whole operation from L.A. So while he was all, all around the world, whether he was in London or he was in Australia or he was in, in Chicago, I was sort of always on his hours. Yeah. So I was like in L.A., you know, doing stuff for him at two 30 in the morning in LA and then getting up early and being in the office by eight a.m. to answer the phones. And those. so, you know, he didn't, he was like, listen, I don't have time to hire you a second assistant. So for the first time in his career, he only had one assistant and it was just me. So I was like the epicenter of his whole universe at that point. And I was sort of the gatekeeper to everything he had going on, both in his personal life and in his professional life. And I kind of, like loved it. You know, that's kind of me. Like I'm the kind of person that like the busier I am, the happier I am. I get really, you know, very frustrated if I don't have enough to work on or I'm not busy and I'm not doing something. And so I kind of loved it and I powered through and I worked and I remember when I started by myself on the desk. That Chuck told me, he said, "Listen, you know, no one's ever been by themselves on this desk before. So if you can figure this out, you know, and you're here 2 years from now, I'll promote you at this
0: company." and so, so you were getting I, I, some semblance of feedback because like i oh would yeah. be i would be like fuck fuck am i am i doing yeah. it am i okay am, you know what i mean i would i just yeah. be popping xanax you know like fuck. <laughs> i <laughs> mean I, everyone
1: asked me like how did you make it through and i go smoking weed you know, the yeah honesty, like, helped me through it. like to be able to go home and smoke weed every night and like relax and calm down was probably half of the reason why i was able to get through it but um You know, so I, so he told me this and I don't, and and he didn't realize what that did, but what that did when he told me that was it put a goal in the back of my head two years okay i can make it two years and you know, i can get to the it's point like the, the entourage experience.
0: lloyd scene you know like yeah, yeah. yeah, it was yeah. Like, and, that's, and
1: that's what it was like i mean dude, yeah. i was a big fan of honorage before i started working there and i remember telling myself every day like i am now on the fucking set of honorage which like, i guess
0: the, that must have been kind of yeah. meta in a way because that was airing right is that was going on oh yeah it was on. yeah i mean i
1: was going home and watching it on the weekends and being <laughs> but like that's me <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so you know it was so i powered through we we got through all of production of The Dark Knight, which is one of the most amazing experiences ever to be a part of that movie.
0: Well, and we to be can't that. Over, did you, because you yeah. said you were on Chuck's uh, schedule in LA and running his operation, did yeah. you get the call to go to Chicago for that?
1: I only I only spent a little bit of time there, so I didn't be able, I wasn't on set the whole time there, but I got to be able to, a part of it. But what was really amazing for me was- I mean, just me spend
0: was, five seconds would be cool, you know?
1: But I got to watch the dailies every day. And so watching the dailies every day and being a part of seeing- what Heath was doing in real time and being able to watch makeup tests and camera tests and just being, cause I got to see all that stuff. Maybe I wasn't wow. there, but I mean, back then they were putting it all on DVDs, which is insane. So to think you about to knew do. before, knew. cause like
0: at the time, everyone was like the guy from fucking A Night's Tale. You know what I mean? Oh, no, like, I knew, Yeah,
1: I knew, I knew. And you know, Heath was just the coolest fucking guy ever and i him and i like i just related to him a lot because he was a you know being a skater kid like he was a yeah australia and, like, dude, was, like, dude yeah he was just a cool fucking guy like he was just a nice cool guy and and i got to read the script and watch him prep you know i got to see all that so i knew what was coming and i remember when we released the Casting news that he was going to be the Joker, and I remember being on huge backlash. Right, yeah There was we were getting hate mail. I mean, people were saying like, "How dare you cast a gay cowboy to play the Joker? You're going to ruin the Joker forever." And I remember thinking like, "Is this how it is? Like, people read announcements and then they come to these conclusions based on without even knowing what
0: the fuck we're doing." Same thing happened with Daniel Craig and Bond, right? You know, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. And it was I was just so taken aback at that point because I'd never experienced anything like that before. But I knew that, like, boy, we're going to blow everyone's fucking brains out when, we, when they see this movie and they see what he's doing and what we're doing on this movie. And so going through the experience on that movie was amazing, you know, and it really taught me so much just in terms of how to manage a brand, you know, to be able to watch Chuck. Because when people don't realize, like, when you produce these DC films that we work on and these big event films producing the movie – it's really only half the job of the producer. The other 50% comes into play when you're managing the consumer products and the toys and the rides and all of the ancillary shit that comes with these. Because yeah. as producers, our goal is to protect the movie at all costs. That's the most important thing to us. And so in order to protect the movie, we also need to make sure that the toys, the rides, the video games, the you know, all the other stuff that's coming with it is it lines up with our film and it yeah. makes You know, the story lines up, the character looks line up, the everything has to tell, you know, like when you're talking about managing the consumer products and the toys, you know, a good example of that is like when we were coming out, the movie was already in post-production and, you know, Mattel wanted to release the the Batpod as a toy. And no, sorry, the Batmobile as a toy, the new Batmobile that we had created for the Dark Knight. And so if you remember from the movie, there's this great moment from the movie where the bat pod ejects off of the front of the Batmobile. And yeah, so the you motorcycle, right. It, right. Right. Yeah. And so the toy had that, it was part of the, the Batmobile would eject off the front of the toy. And so we knew that like, well, if you guys release this ahead of the movie, that moment in the movie is going to be ruined because people and are going to It's a oh, huge story. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So it's things like that that people don't realize. That you, Attention you just, you know, to millions.
0: detail, you know, totally. And you yeah. have to
1: catch those things because if, you know, Mattel wants to get that toy out there as soon as possible, but you have to be the one and the voice that goes, absolutely not. You can't release this toy until the movie comes out because if you do, it's going to blow a story point and it could mess up this process for what we're trying to do with this big surprise moment with this bat pot ejecting off of the front of the Batmobile. And so it's those kinds of things, you know, and I got to watch, I was like, it was like a masterclass watching Chuck do that. You know, there's no one better in this business that can manage these brands and these, pieces, these big pieces of IP and these... million movies better than he did and what he was able to do. And so, so that's, that was my education. Being able to watch that in real time and be a part of it was just fucking amazing. And so, you know, I got to the point at Atlas where I'd been there about a year and a half and Chuck walks in the office one day and he just goes like, why haven't you hired yourself a second assistant? And I was like, well, nobody told me I could
0: wait. You didn't didn't even have, so no one ever filled your shoes. No, no. So I So you were doing just, fucking two job to like seven oh yeah, jobs. Oh yeah. God yeah, damn it. The only reason Andy. why I
1: was able to make it work was because I I changed the whole operation of the whole office to make it work for me. And I told myself, if I can change everything, but Chuck never even notices then who cares he doesn't care if you know you there's a certain protocol or a certain way that we do things cuz so i changed everything and i modernized the whole thing i decided no more filing papers you know we're going to make everything digital we're going to digitally file we're going to do so i just modernized everything and I changed the whole operation of the office, but Chuck never knew. So what did he care? As long as it was, it was fun. So, I, but I did it so it could work for a one person gig. Cause that, that office and that desk was never supposed to be one person. Yeah. So I had to change everything. So as now one person driving the whole operation. And like I said, I mean, it was eight o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night, five days a week, you know, every meal on that desk plus working most weekends too, for, for a full two years, nonstop, you know, and and so after about a year and a half, he comes up to me and he says, Why haven't you hired yourself a second assistant? And I said, I didn't know I could do that. No one told me I could just go hire a second assistant. So so I called up my um, my one of my producing partners from my thesis film and film school, this guy, Kurt Konamoto, who's still one of my closest friends to this day. And he was working in reality TV and I said, Hey, you want to come work with me over oh, at Atlas? Man, you really threw and, him a lifeboat. <laughs> yeah. And he was like, Are you serious? And I go, Yeah, you know, I need a second assistant. And and um, I said, you know, when can you come and meet Chuck? And he said, okay, let me call you back. Let me figure it out my schedule. He called me back ten minutes later. He goes, okay, I quit my job. When can I come meet Chuck? And I go, Kurt, you haven't even gotten the job yet. You <laughs> just quit your job at your at reality TV company, you know. And so I got him hooked up with Chuck the week later. And Chuck obviously was cool with him, and he hired him. And and so that made my life so much easier because Kurt and I already worked so well together before in film school, and we just brought that same dynamic into the real world, into the office. And so now Kurt had been there for about six or seven months. And Chuck asked me to go to breakfast one day. And I go, sure. You know, I, my first thought, of course, is like, oh, fuck, he's going to fire Kurt. Now I'm going to have to do it. And it's going to be a horrible situation. And, you know, so we go to breakfast and Chuck says to me, he goes, you know, obviously you haven't been paying attention, but last week was, was two years to the day that I told you that if you're still here two years from now, I'm going to promote you. So this breakfast is for me to tell you that I want you to be the first creative executive at Atlas. And so that was like amazing, you know. I was I was twenty five and now almost twenty six, and now I'm a, an executive at Atlas Entertainment, and you know, and at that point we didn't really have a development department or creative executives. So I was the first
0: creative and, executive. And just really curious, to be there. when you started at Atlas, how big was the company? Yeah. How many employees?
1: Uh, the company was probably one, two, three, It was probably ten, maybe it's in very total. Small. If you include, yeah, if you inc- yeah. Inc- inclusive of ins- assistants. So you know, assistants and executives, probably ten people total. Wow. And um, and so that was amazing. So I, you know, I we, I, you know, Kurt took over for me. He hired himself a replacement. And in August of two thousand nine, I became. I was a member sitting in my own office at Atlas, and I was like, okay, you know, I'm I'm here. I've got yeah. my own office and now what, you know, like there's no one telling me what to do every day. And it was just sort of like, I now got to create my own, my own situation, my own world within Atlas. And, you know, it was, I got, Super lucky, and one of the first projects that I was handed. You worked. Don't executive. don't.
0: Hey, don't gloss over how fucking hard you work, bro. I, I mean, mean, come I, on. I worked, Let's oh, give no, yourself I did, credit. Yeah.
1: No, I, I worked. I worked insanely hard. I mean, that is, that you know, my my world was was insane for two plus years. But I always tell people you know, success in this business is, is right place, right time. That's all it is. You know, and like, and and, and for
0: those listening, because I don't want to gloss over working for a powerhouse like Chuck, you know, obviously yeah. given the headlines of, you know, who recently we've heard yeah. stories of assistance and it being more than abusive and, and other people that are in prison and, you know, balancing that boss, but, you know, like wanting to grow relationship. How yeah. did you manage that in that two years of like, okay, I'm, I'm not his friend, but I respect him, but I need, you know what I mean? Like that's, well, we,
1: we had a great dynamic. I mean, I think it's part of the reason why a Chuck hired me and b, you know, we get along so well and I'm still there 15 years later and it's Chuck and I are on complete opposite ends of the spectrum, right? So Chuck handles things from, from uh, what I always tell people is that to be successful in Hollywood, in my opinion, you have to operate on one side of the spectrum. Either you're going to be the person that's intimidating And kind of scary and people do things because they don't want to get yelled at. Or rule by law. Or you're gonna be the kind of person on the other side of the spectrum that is super nice, calm, cool, collected, and people want to do a good job for you because they like you and they respect you and they wanna do good. If you operate anywhere in the middle, meaning that you try to be an asshole sometimes and then you're a nice guy other times. That I don't think you're going to be successful in this business. You yeah. unfortunately have to commit to one or the other. Yeah. And you know the good news is, is that these days most people are on the the side of the spectrum that I'm on. There's still some old school hollow that's left that still operates on that scary side of the spectrum, and there's those guys that are around. But back then in 2007, Chuck was very much sort of on that side of the spectrum, and so we had this amazing dynamic where when things would go wrong, you know, and he would be yelling at someone or raising his voice and getting really upset about something. What I would do is that when that phone call was over, I would pick up the phone call as his assistant. And I would say, "Now let's just talk about what happened. You know, let's uh, let's figure out why that happened. How did that happen? And let's figure out ways to make it not happen again. Cause there's obviously mistakes were made and this is what the outcome was. And so we had this incredible dynamic where like, it's almost like he wouldn't tear people down, but he would have, you know, he would, people would be upset. And then I would sort of swoop in and lift them back up and bring them back to reality because there's so many people in town you know that if you get yelled at like you're kind of just off for the rest of the day it's hard to get back on track if you feel like you fucked up you know and and so
0: i got I thought, like, ch- at a restaurant last night it ruined the meal you know what i, uh, mean? Dude, I mean yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's yeah.
1: jarring yeah and it's, it's a it's a really uncomfortable thing and so I always had really thick skin. It never bothered me to get yelled at. I didn't give a fuck. You know, if you want to yell at me, go for it. Like yeah. I was never rattled by it. I never got upset by it. I always was like really cool, calm, and collected. And that's part of what Chuck. That's what Chuck needed in his life. You know, he needed a guy like me that was like the cool-headed, calm person that never raised his voice. That was always real. You know, would never panic. Would always problem solve, even when things are burning down around you. Like that was always me. And so. I had realized that really early on that Chuck needed a guy like that. And I was the perfect guy to be that guy. And I still am that guy for him. You know, 15 years later, we still have a very, very similar dynamic. And, and so to me, that's why I was so successful on his desk because I was the guy that like people were scared of Chuck, but they loved hanging out with me, yeah. you know, or they loved me. And so even like the super high level agents and executives and directors that would work directly with Chuck they all knew me and they all like really loved me. And like, they would like send me gifts for the holidays. And like, cause I was this like calming force in Chuck's right. life that, that he kind of needed at that time because he had so much going on and there was so much happening and so much pressure. And, you know, it was just, it was just a crazy environment. So in a weird way, it was like sort of the role I was born for because I've always been kind of a very calm, cool, collected guy. And it was, it was kind of, it was the it was the type of role that would everyone on paper would have gone. Andy will never survive there because he's way too chilled out to be in that environment. And it ended up the very
0: thing that
1: saved. Yeah, you. but in actuality, it was the perfect place for me because it's that environment needed someone just like me, you know. And yeah. I filled a great I, I filled a great niche for for what that was. Um. So so yeah. So what I was saying I got lucky, is that I got lucky in a sense that when I became a creative executive, the first project that was handed to me when it was just an idea was at that time it was called American bullshit, but turned into what was called American hustle. And so, you know, that film was the first film that I got to be on as an executive, where we took that from an idea to a screenplay, to a package, to a movie, to going and be on set of that movie, you know, to making that movie, to going on the award circuit and going yeah. to the fucking golden globe. I mean, it was just an insane thing for someone my age to be through, to go through, and I yeah. just got incredible. Like I said, to me, it's like it's just as much much luck as it is, you know, hard work to get there. Like it took, it took both those things, and you know, that film I think still to this day is the film that I'm probably the most proud of that I've been a part of, just because. I fucking love that movie. You know, I just like it was shout I'm out so to, proud of it. To yeah.
0: Jack Houston and Shay Wiggum who, who Oh yeah. Alumni yeah. of the podcast who were in that movie. Yeah, you know. and I
1: met Jack on that movie, you know, and Shay, but but Jack in particular, you know, I Jack and I had still sort of kept in touch and a year and a half ago, you know, we I was in New York for a bunch of time finishing Triple Frontier and Got to reconnect with Jack, and we had a, a fun, really a few really fun nights out. Oh, dude,
0: really we'll we we'll have to hang in LA yeah, or in New York. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's such a fun
1: guy to hang with. I yeah, really like that
0: guy. Yeah. Oh man, that's awesome. So then, you know, I'm curious. So, you know, when you when you got that script, was a Russell attached already or no?
1: No. So it was a, that that. I mean, every movie, like I always say, every movie is a miracle, right? Because the yeah. fact that you're going to get any movie made and to get to that point. Wasn't set, that the one is, that is
0: yeah, after I, I heard Huckabee's, there was a long gap, right?
1: Well, that we, so David Russell, so the, the story really, the way it was, is we had developed that, that script at Sony. And so this is when we were developing that script, David hadn't even started shooting Silver Linings Playbook yet. So it was sort of like that. It was years before he even started shooting it. And we Got developed it. it. With this amazing writer named Eric Warren Singer, and and this was in the the actually the beginning of the story. So we had produced a film that Eric wrote called The International. Tom Ticker directed it, and Clive Owen starred in it. And the movie was great. I liked the movie a lot, and the studio liked it a lot too. They thought there was going to be a sequel.
0: Hey guys, so sorry there was a glitch in the audio here. So we're going to pick it back up right now with part two. You were talking about David Russell being attached. So pick it up from
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, well, going back before that, so like I said, so we thought there was going to be a, a, um, a sequel to The International. The, the movie didn't perform very well. So, they used that deal in place for Eric to hire him for something else. And Eric decided that he wanted to write this movie about the abscam scandal. So, at that point, we developed the script, we turned it in. And because Sony sort of raised their hand earlier in that year and said, listen, we're out of money, we're not making this movie, we knew that we had a really a, a, quite an uphill battle. Um, Hold on, let me just plug my computer in before it dies. Um, so the uphill battle essentially was that they didn't have the amount of money left to make that movie unless we hired an amazing filmmaker that they just loved and had to be in business with. So cut to six months later, we had attached Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck was gonna direct that movie. Wow. And so we were starting to develop it with Ben and redevelop the script with him. And right as Eric was about to start writing the script, Ben Affleck got a call about this movie called Argo uh, and went off and, and that made movie. Yeah. yeah. So, and obviously it worked out really well for him and he made the right decision. So, you know, he went off and made Argo and then the project just kind of sat, you know, we just sat in the stock like, in development.
0: Break, you know, yeah. Like,
1: yeah. For like two years. And after about two years, David Russell, who Chuck had known previously, because Chuck produced three Kings for him had come to us. He showed us Silver Linings playbook early. I flipped out when I saw Silver Linings. I'm like, that movie is amazing. And it just crushed me in the best possible ways. And so David said, I want to do this movie. And we're like, great. So we go back to Sony and we say like, we've got David Russell, let's go do the movie. And Sony was like, nah, I don't think that's going to do it for us. They hadn't seen Silver Linings yet. So what we asked them to do is we said, okay, give us the project back. You know, let us take the project out of the studio let's put a cast. let us try to put a cast together. We'll find a financier and, you know, we'll come back to you for maybe distribution later on, if it makes yeah. sense. And so, so that's what we did. So we took the project out of Sony and we went and Megan Ellison, who had just started Anna Pert at the time, yeah. was like, I want to finance this movie. Uh, we did foreign sales. We put our cast together. The cast of course was, you know, who, who it was. And it was an amazing cast. And so we got to the place where like, here we are, we've got our movie. And then of course, Sony was like, well, and we get, can we come back? Like we want to be back. We want to come back in. And so we then go, nego- we brought it back to Sony and then negotiated a co financier situation with Annapurna and Sony. So they co-finance it together with Sony distributing. And then. I actually think I know
0: all about this because of the Sony hack book. Yeah. 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 So yeah.
1: A lot of those emails are out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um. So, so yeah. So we went off and we got to go make that movie and it was, you know, it was a wild, insane, crazy experience on a million different levels and just being a fly on the wall. Cause in reality, I was a co-producer on that film. I was the junior executive. I was like, just happy to fucking be there.
0: And was that your first time the whole shoot on a set? Wow. Yeah.
1: So in reality, you know, I didn't have a major function there, except to sort of be a sponge and sort of problem solve and help out on things. But there were plenty of very capable other people there that were really doing the heavy lifting, and so I was always sort of that young kid on set that everyone was like, "What, you know, what's what's he doing here?" And and I was always trying to figure out ways to help and be a part of the process, and and it was amazing, you know, I guess. But that was a tough movie to make on a number of levels. You I know, can only that,
0: fucking imagine. So
1: man. really hard shoot. You know, we had shot through. The blizzards that were happening and, and it's bombs. a
0: period piece on top of that you know a period
1: piece a lot of it was outdoors in the freezing cold but we were trying to make it not look cold and then sure enough halfway through the production the boston bombing happened and so we had to shut down for you know the marathon bombing happened and so yeah. we shut down for for two days and the whole city shut down and we had to came back from that and so it was just it was a crazy and then so we wrapped that movie God, I think we wrapped the movie in May and the movie came out in December. So we had this incredibly truncated, tiny post Because
0: of schedule. the – we yeah. wanted the awards. Yeah, because yeah, we wanted yeah. the
1: yeah. release. You know? yeah. and we knew we could probably get ready. So we had three editors on of that movie editing the film at one time to hit that crazy post-production schedule that we had. And – you know, the movie, like I said, it was, it's a movie that was, was incredibly difficult and, but, but the most rewarding, you know, it was such an experience getting to be on that film. And, and then I remember sitting at the Golden Globes, like when we won our Golden Globe and I was like, holy shit, like this is, it's not going to get, and everyone kept telling me like, do not fucking get used to this. This is not how it goes. Like it's not normal. You know, you somehow got into this and then, you know, from there, you know, I was just a creative executive at the time. So after coming off of that movie, I became a vice president. And then a few years later, a senior vice president. And then, you know, a few years after that, an executive vice president. And so yeah. it's, you know, the, it's been a 15 year journey there, but, you know, I've got to be a part of some amazing projects and I've kind of done every job there is to do at a production company, yeah. uh, you know, from from really the, the very, very bottom to the to the top now. Um, you know, I, I went on to produce two little small independent films after American Hustle, one called The Hollow Point and one called Mojave. Um, it's where I met, uh, Garrett Hedlund and Oscar Isaac, who I had done two films yeah, with. Oscar, and yeah, I love Oscar. And, um, and then I did Suicide Squad, you know, in 2015. And, back and to know, the big thing. Yeah. But yeah, back to, back to a big film like that. Uh, and then, um. Was you know, it weird you know, going go from and...
0: one Joker to another? Was that weird for you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
1: it was like, I mean, it was wild. I gotta say, like, I mean, I was a huge Batman fan as a kid. So, like, yeah. all of a sudden, you know, I'm on Suicide Squad and we're, working with Jared on his Joker performance and I had been through the Heath experience and I'm like, how fucking lucky am I? Like, yeah, I've now done made two movies with in less than 10 jokes. years too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And two different Batman. Movies. Yeah. I mean, it was Christian Bale. And then, you know, Ben Affleck being Batman when I did this, he was, he was in, on the Suicide Squad for a little bit too. So, you know, it was just a, it was a crazy, crazy experience on Su- Suicide Squad was definitely the most fun I've ever had making a movie. I mean, that one was like, the camaraderie there, the cast, that everyone it just was like lovely and the best. And David, an amazing, great filmmaker, um, yeah, you know. It was a, it was an amazing, amazing, and I learned so much from it, you know. And then finally, uh you know, in twenty eighteen, um, got to be the the senior lead producer on what we call a tentpole film, which is this film called Triple Frontier. Love triple. Um, and uh, and so that was that was sort of like a graduate. That was like finally, I for me. Now being the senior producer on a hundred plus million dollar movie, I was like, okay, now I, now I can tell myself, like, I finally got there, you know, yeah. like I finally, I made it. Um, and, you know, I could write a book about the making of Triple Frontier. I mean, that one was also a, a very, very difficult one, but, but uh, another film I'm very proud of. Uh,
0: how, how are you for time? Cause uh, I, you know, okay. I'm good. Okay, yeah. cool. Cause like I don't know if you want to do part one, part two, or we keep going, no, we you tell me.
1: Keep, we can keep going if you're if you're cool.
0: I'm cool, man. Yeah. So yeah. so man, I'm you know, I I'm so curious because obviously in that time Netflix became a thing and streaming started becoming a thing. Did Atlas start entering that space then?
1: So we you know, Atlas well, we pride ourselves in being you know, our goal is always to have the theatrical experience with our films. You yeah, know, it's always sort of it's how I grew up. I've, I've, you know, I lived in movie theaters when I was a kid. It's, it was like it's always, you know, I love the the idea of bringing audiences in there and letting them escape for two hours at a time and being in a different world. And so that was always our goal. And when we started making Triple Frontier, it was a Paramount, and it was one of those films that was just a troubled movie from the start. It was a yeah. tough one. And, you know, we had actually sold that movie as a pitch to Paramount when I was still an assistant. And so now all of a sudden, you know, I'm a senior producer on the movie and this is 10 years later. So this was a 10-year wow. process to get Triple Frontier made and off the ground. I mean, these movies take forever. I mean, American Hustle took us eight years to get yeah. it made from the time we sold it until we made it. And Triple Frontier was 10. So, you know, it was at, it was at Paramount and it was – again, Triple was one of those movies that like kind of sits in a weird place for – the theatrical studio movie, it was sort of at that point, it was like a $60 million movie, mid-level movie. Those movies are really fucking tough to get made in the studio system. They're you know? impossible. I, think a, they, I don't think
0: they, it happens yeah. anymore, you know?
1: No. So we were, you know, we had a bunch of casting issues on triple and just weird, crazy issues on triple and that were that were happening. And at the time those issues were happening, the movie was at Paramount and we were always sort of trying to hit this number that they didn't want us to spend anything over. It was like, I think anything over 65 million, like that was the cap they wanted to spend on the movie. And we were sacrificing so much to make the movie for that price. You know, it was just, there was sacrifices being made all over the place. It coincided at the same time with a new studio executive taking over. So Jim Janopoulos had just come into the studio at the same time we were having these issues on our film. And so he hadn't he didn't know what the movie was he hadn't regime read regime change yeah and so he was like there's problems on that movie i don't know what it is just get rid of it. we're not going to make that movie yeah so we now have this situation where we had a movie that we really believed in we had a filmmaker that we really liked and it also coincided like i say, right right time right place it coincided with scott stuber taking over as the head of netflix and so it was the, I remember the email that we got from Scott when it was announced that Triple Frontier was going down at Paramount. Scott still had his universal email address and he, he hadn't even had his office yet at Netflix. Wow. And he reached out to us and goes, Hey, I love this package. I love this movie. You know, I'd love to make this movie with you guys. And so thus started our Netflix experience. And at that point, you know, we were the biggest Netflix movie they had ever made. You know, we were now, because obviously, Netflix being the incredible partners that they are essentially came to us and they said just tell us what you need to make the movie the right way you yeah. know like it, it, and we always wanted to make that movie the old school way which is what we did we wanted you know real stunts and real cars and we didn't want to shoot the whole fucking thing on green screen and we wanted to and and every location is real and we spent you know out of 70 days shooting that movie we only had 3 days on a stage which was the interior of the helicopter but everything else was you know, when we were outside, we were really outside in the mud and the swamps of Hawaii and yeah. the crazy situations there. When we're freezing our asses off in the movie up in the mountains, we were up in the man, you know, the Sierra Nevadas up in Mammoth, freezing our asses off. The whole opening sequence of the movie, we were actually in a little town called La Isla, about an hour outside of Bogotá, in Colombia, where we shot uh. that whole thing. So we really went to all those places. We really shot the movie in those real scenarios. And if we were going to do it. A different way we would have been on a fucking stage with a green screen and just just wouldn't have felt yeah you know so so we loved it and we and netflix gave us the opportunity to make the movie the right way and they gave us all the resources and tools that we needed to do it and it uh, like i said at that time it was the the only movie they had made that was that was a big movie before that was this movie called bright which was a you know their first sort of big expensive movie they made and then and then came us and so it was it was a great great experience like i loved it i really did and i it was the whole time though i did have to continue to remind myself because you know when you make these movies you know i leave home for six seven eight when i was on suicide squad i left home for nine months and didn't come back and and so that's tough to do and when you're when you're putting that kind of sacrifice into making these films you know part of the reward is the theatrical experience the lifespan of the movie the premieres the red carpets, the going and you know, my favorite thing to do when I make a movie is just like sit in the theater and watch it with an audience and yeah. like watch them react to it. And and I had to keep reminding myself like none of that was going to happen on this. This was going to be a situation where, I mean, yeah, we'll have a premiere, but then someone's going to press a button and then it's just going to be in a hundred million households yeah. and all of a sudden. and And, you know, on Netflix, it's really hard too because they have so much product that like you're kind of the flavor of the week. It's really yeah. hard to not be anything more than that. We got lucky back then, you know, this was in 2019 we released the movie so they didn't have as much stuff so we had a really nice lifespan on that but now on netflix you know movie comes out it's people talk about it for two or three days and then it's buried underneath thousands of other movies and that's that's kind of it you have a very very short pop on a lot of those films that that netflix is releasing and so that was a that was a little bit bitter pill to swallow to get used to but at the end of the day you know, that's the business. Like that's yeah. where the business is going. And it was something that, that I knew I'm like, okay, this is a thing. I'm going to have to get used to this because. Adapt or die. Totally. And I've been yeah. making a lot more streaming movies, you know, theatrical and streaming. I've got, I love both experiences now. And I've I've come to a place where yes, I would prefer my film to be played in a theater full of people on a big screen, but that's not the world we're living in now. And yeah. some movies, make more sense for the streaming model and they just do. And the, and the movies, you know, that that are getting made on the streaming services, it's an amazing thing to have because those films would have never gotten made otherwise at the major studios. So, you know, a lot of people shit on the streaming, the streaming situation and how it works. And to me, you know, I like to try to find the positive in it. And the positive for me, one of the major ones is that, though the, now that the streamers are making movies we're getting an opportunity to make movies that would have been very difficult to make within the studio system prior to the streaming coming into it. To existence.
0: You know. And and you and I spoke before about this, and I hope we can speak, you know, the, the middle class movie so to speak, you know, the uh, you know, above five and about to 60, you know, yeah. those are those as you were saying, they just don't get made anymore. It's, you right. know, the Minaris and, and, and those or, you know, it's Avengers 2457. And yeah. for yeah. the filmmakers that are budding and trying to do this and having gone to Sundance now what do you think is is the hope for the people that are in that that middle range that aren't trying? You
1: know, yeah, I mean, there's there's, like I said, those movies are still getting made more often than they're getting made more now than they were, you know ten years ago when i was when i when i when we were when I was making independent films through Atlas. And so, you know, but the thing that I always try to encourage filmmakers right now is like it's almost not enough to make a good movie. You yeah. have to make a movie. You have to make some noise with your movie you know you have people have to fucking talk about it and in order to have something really benefit you as a young filmmaker in your career you got to like make your movie's got to make some noise you know it's got to be a kind of movie that like people are running around telling other people they got to go see you know they're talking about on social media they're tweeting about it they're instagramming about it you know that that's what's the most important thing in my opinion to film young filmmakers is just a getting a movie made and B making some fucking noise with it and making that making it a movie that people are talking about. And it's not just going to be a movie that slides under the radar that maybe
0: gets some good reviews but no one really sees. A parasite. You know? a, a never ending dialogue of like, have you seen that movie? You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, yeah. and
1: there's tons of movies that are that are doing it. You know, there's a lot of movies that are doing it these days. And, you know, so I always try to encourage filmmakers when you're talking about the projects that you want to spend. Because anytime you go make a movie, you're spending three years of your life on that movie, no matter what. If, if not, not 10, started. you know. Not not 10, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at a minimum three years. You yeah. Know? And so, so anything you're willing to go give three years of your at a minimum of your life to, it better be something that you really fucking care about and something that you think is going to really benefit you and your career. And there are so many films getting made these days that that's the hardest thing to do is just make some noise with your yeah. movie and make it so, you know, cause like with the streaming services, you have the ability to get so many eyeballs on your movie. You know, yeah. that's always our goal as filmmakers is just to get people to watch our stuff. You know, that's the goal. You know, you have so many people watching your movies on the streaming services, but it's, it's hard to make some noise right now. Yeah. And that's what you really got to do. You got to find films that people are going to talk about that they're going to tell people they got to go see that they're gonna watch multiple times, that they're gonna tweet about, like I said, I mean, it's just the goal right now, in my opinion, as a young filmmaker is make as much noise as you can and just get noticed, you know, because it's it's so hard to get noticed these days. Even if you've finally gotten to the place where you made a feature film, to stand out and to be someone that people are talking about yeah. is uh, is really important these days.
0: And in going back to your own experience, you know, dealing with your brother who did go to film school, and yeah. and 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 going to your own unique film school, you know, like I know it's yeah. not a binary yes or no, but like for those people listening that are budding filmmakers and and thinking about that, do you think is it is as imperative as it once was to go to a film school? No,
1: yeah. I mean, I, I it's a con. I always say this, and it's very controversial, but like I've hired hundreds if not thousands of people in my 15 years working in this business yeah not once have i ever checked where they went to film school not one time i don't care i really don't and most people in this business do not care it's about who you know and what you've done and who can i call that will vouch for you to say that you're good at your job yeah and that to me means more than any film school education and film school is a great place to create a network it's a great place to have an education to fall back on. If this whole film thing doesn't work out you've at least got a degree from somewhere, which is always a great thing to have. Um, but to me, it's just, you know, here's an example, you know, like I went to undergrad and I got my, my degree in film and video production. And there were people that I know that went to the Peter Stark producing program at USC after they graduated from Brooks, where I grew up, where yeah. I graduated from.
0: For grad school? And for grad school. Yeah. yeah.
1: And so, you know, and that's great. But, let me tell you, when they graduated that Peter Stark producing program at film school, which is a great program and a great school. But when they graduated, they were two years behind me now yeah. and $100,000 more in debt than I was. Yeah. So, and the kind of jobs that they were looking to get out of that program – where the types of jobs that I got right out of, you're only going to get an assistant job right out of film school, whether you go to grad school or undergrad school, no one's hiring you. No one's going to give you millions of dollars to go out produce a movie when you come out of one of those programs. Yeah. You've got to earn your, you got to And earn you don't it. want to be
0: 32 going off for the 21 year old job. You know what I mean?
1: No, yeah. No. So it's, a, I always tell people to be very fucking careful when you're going to grad, grad school is an amazing thing in our business for screenwriters, for actors yeah. to, try, to hone their craft. Um, there are parts of our business that I do think it makes a whole lot of sense for, for, producing and for directing and for anything else in our business outside of writing and acting, you know, I just, to me, it doesn't make sense. It just yeah. doesn't. And, and no one. I
0: appreciate the candor on that. I fully and, agree. I mean,
1: really, I, and it sounds shitty to say because people go into so much debt and they spend all this money on NYU and USC and, and all these expensive film schools and the thing that those people usually get that's the biggest benefit to them when they get out of those is a network of people to reach out to to help them when they look for gigs and yeah. and that is really important you know the the networking that you get done at USC and NYU and all these great film schools is is incredibly valuable and i always tell people that you can be you can have all the tools in your toolkit to be a great filmmaker, but if you don't have a network, you're nothing. You your network is everything in this business. If you don't have anyone to call to get things done, or people aren't calling you to send you stuff, you're dead in the water. So, you know, being, being, having a great network and being well-read, knowing, you know, reading screenplays and knowing who the great writers are and having an, that's like your currency as a producer in this business. That's your wealth. That's like your wealth of, of experience. And so, your network is literally everything you know if, if my network was to go away tomorrow i don't i'd have to leave i leave the business you know like that's like and you spend and i've spent 15 years cultivating a network and and getting people to trust me and and getting people to trust me with their clients and the client's work and you know all of that stuff and it takes time and energy and that time that it takes to build up that network and to gain that trust and to gain that experience you don't get any of that in film school. You know, yeah. you don't. You get the network part of it, but you don't get that other part of it that's going to bring you business. And so, you know, I just think these days it's much more important, in my opinion, to just go out there and start doing it. Work your yeah. way up from the fucking bottom. Go start pa Go try to find an assistant job in the business. I promise you that that no one's going to look at your resume and go, oh, they didn't go to a good film school. I'm not hiring them. Yeah. You know, at least most people don't. And there are parts of the business, if you want to work in the agency system um, – if you want to work at a law firm, you know an entertainment law firm, yes, of course, you they're gonna look at that and go on to know where you went to school and what kind of degree you have. But as a producer, I couldn't care less where you
0: went to school. you know, it
1: doesn't really mean anything to me.
0: that's amazing. I really appreciate you sharing that and uh, i'm'm yeah. I'm, I'm curious, man, you know, I'm bringing it back, you know, to the actors, man, you know, like obviously yeah. you've had such incredible experience working with so many different actors as a producer, you know for you, you know obviously. Everyone knows how hard it is to make it as an actor, but for you, yeah. for example, you know, and and I don't I don't mean this disrespectfully, but you know, at a certain time, Oscar Isaac's market value was this. He got attached mm-hmm. to this one thing where he was supposed to die, he didn't, and it became exponentially bigger. So then, when yeah. he comes back for Triple Frontier, you know, for you, before anything like that happens, even though sometimes producers know what's coming, obviously in the development. What helps you take a chance on an actor that may not yet be, you know, the Star Wars Oscar Isaac, that may just be the Juilliard Oscar Isaac, you know?
1: I mean, the crazy thing is, and it's funny you mentioned him, is that that I did that with him. You know, we actually – I was the associate producer on this. It was our first Atlas independent film, and it was a film called Revenge for Jolly. And we made the movie for $1 million, and it (sighs) starred Oscar – and it starred Oscar Isaac. And before anyone knew who Oscar Isaac was, it was literally this movie – I'm a big dog person and I work in dog rescue and it's part of why I love the movie is about a, it's essentially, it was funny. It came, we made this movie years before John wick, but it's a very similar plot where it's about a guy who he pisses off the wrong group of people and they kill his dog. And so him and his goofy friend go on this revenge mission to go figure out who killed their dog and get revenge. And so it's called revenge for jolly. And it's starring this guy, Brian Petzos, who wrote the movie, and Oscar Isaac. And they're the two that were falling throughout the movie. So it's this fucking goofy ass movie that we made for 1 million bucks in New York, uh, probably in like 2010, maybe 2011. I can't remember. Um, and so that was like, Oscar had done a few little things before that, but no one knew who he was. But I remember he just was like, everyone kept going. Like, you got to hire this guy. You got to hire this guy. He's so fucking talented. And, and I, what I was watching and doing that movie, I was like, I, I could see, I mean, to me, you know, you could tell, like, you could, and when people have that little special thing about them, even if they have become a movie star, I can always see it, you know, you yeah. can feel it in their performance, and just, when they turn on, you know, when you get to see them be a real person, and step in front of the camera, and be that character, watching actors do that, to me, is like, it, you can really sort of see the skill level, and, and how they are as a real person, how they are in front of camera, because, of course, you got, you got to be able to turn it on, and turn it off, and, yeah, you know, I just have always had so much respect for actors and actresses, because, it's so fucking hard, you know? Yeah. And I don't think people realize how hard it is. And I think it's not just hard to get the opportunity, it's hard mentally. And I, and I notice it as a producer when, I'm, when we're casting our films and, you know, you have these people that are putting themselves on tape all the time and doing auditions. And, you know, it's to sit there in an audition next to six other people that look just like you, that have the same hair color as you, yeah. that are your age, and to know that they're my competition and to not get the role over and over, it's damaging on, on your mental health, right? I mean, yeah. it's the most, that's why I always tell people like, it's being, trying to become an actor is not the most physically exhausting, but it's definitely the most mentally exhausting oh, part God. of our business. Yeah. And, and I know you go through it. And I know so many other people go through it. And I want to tell all the actors and actors out there, like, as a producer, I know it, you know, and I notice it. And I try so hard to, be kind to those people because I know how hard that process is. It's unfucking comfortable. It's not yeah. a fun process, and you know everyone. You know under the, the there's always there was this fact that I had heard you know way long time ago. There was like, you know, two hundred thousand people come to Hollywood every every year. No, every it, week, yeah, I heard the same thing with stars in their eyes, and three hundred thousand people leave. You know, it's this constant revolving door, and it's just so competitive. And I like I always say, it's like with anything in this business it's right place right time and and it's really i always try to encourage people to like this business i always compare it to being on a roller coaster yeah and this business is extreme highs followed by extreme lows and the people that survive the longest in this business are the ones that can hold on and ride that fucking roller coaster knowing that like when you're in this extreme high and everything's going so great you're having the best time and you think you've made it Remind yourself that very soon after that, you will be down here in that low and things are going to be really fucking tough and you're going to hate this business and you're going to say fuck this business and you're going to want to leave. And when you're down there, remind yourself about what it was like when you had that nice little moment. And and this business is like this. It's riding the roller coaster, extreme highs while extreme lows. And the people that last the longest are the ones that know that and know that you know. no matter who you are in this business from – the PA on a reality TV production company set or Steven Spielberg, both of those people are riding that same fucking roller coaster. And people don't realize that even Steven Spielberg often has failures all the time in this business. Yeah, You know, everyone, this business is you are failing way more than you're succeeding. And you are being told, I always tell people, it's like, all it takes is one yes. You can be told no a thousand times, and all you need is one yes, and off you go, and you're good. Yeah. And so, even as a producer, I get told no fifty times a week. You know, on uh, we get told no ten thousand times to one yes. You know, yeah. and it's like that, and and that's at our level, at Atlas's level. And so, imagine you know, and people that are really at the bottom, they keep getting told no. I always try to remind them, like, yes, it, it also happens at our level, too. It happens with the Chris Nolans of the world. It happens with the Steven Spielbergs. These people are also being told no all the time, and they also are going through their own failures all the time. And their own, They're in their own head, and they're having their own imposter syndrome that's going on, and all these things are happening with those people at the very top. And it's just this business, like I said, it's a fucking roller coaster, and you just got to, like, hold on tight. And, and just know that like highs and lows, highs and lows, highs and lows. And it's a, you know, it's a mentally exhausting business on every side, but from the, you know, the talent standpoint, the actors and actresses, I, I have a complete, you know, so much respect for, for everyone that's on that side of the business, because I know how hard it is, you know, it's really, really
0: hard i program. really appreciate that man and and i yeah. hope you know when you know whatever you have in your slate next when when you got pizza boy one to four you're calling me for an audition <laughs> <no>. I,
1: mean, <laughs> you know, I, I love nothing more than being able to do that you know yeah. like to be able to work with people that i like really respect and that are friends of mine and like that you know that's always my goal you know you spend too much time working in this business to surround yourself by people that you don't really like spending
0: yeah oh you're back out you're back out to give people opportunities. You went back oh. out for, you're back, you're back, you're back. Would you? I mean, what, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, I was saying, you know, to be able to give people opportunities is one of my favorite things to do in this yeah. business, honestly, to be able to say like, to be able to find talent and, and, and people that are really talented that deserve a shot. They just haven't been given it. You know, one of my favorite things that I get to do because I've been in this business for so long is sometimes I get to give those people those experiences yeah. and those opportunities. And it, it truly is one of my favorite things to be able to do. I fucking love it. You know, it makes me yeah. feel so good. And, and to be able to, you know, this is the kind of business where I always treat everyone as I will be working alongside them or maybe even for them one day. Yeah. Right. Cause you never know, you know, I treat my interns so well because maybe they're going to be an agent representing yeah. someone that I want to work on a movie with one day. And so, You know, you just never know. You just never know. And, and, you know, part of it comes from a a place where I go, hey, maybe I'll need a favor from this person one day, you know, and maybe they'll want to pay it forward. So you just never know. You never know. So I, but I do, I love giving people those kind of opportunities. And it just is, you know, to be able to, to break new talent is like, boy, is that something you don't get to do very often. But when it happens, it's very, very
0: rewarding. And it means so much to me, and and having you on, man. I'm so glad Simon connected us. I feel like you're my brother, yeah. and dude, dude, I could go for two more hours. So I, I mean this with every word. Please come back, dude. Yeah, you know? I
1: mean anytime. I'm Yeah, around, so yeah, time and and uh, you know, let me know if you want to have a follow up chat about it. I
0: would love to sure. have a follow up. So let's yeah. count that in the books. This is part one yeah. with with Andy. Um, what what you know? Final question. What you know? Everything's been amazing, and and you answered a lot of things that I would ask to the final. So what? can you announce that is coming up for you guys?
1: Um, one thing I'm really excited about was um, I made a podcast last year, which was, uh, I made a true crime podcast actually. That was, what was uh, it called? It was called chameleon Hollywood con queen. And okay. it was about this scam that was happening in our business. Um, that was a person that was calling themselves the Hollywood con queen. And a friend of mine got wrapped up in the scam uh, about 2018 and so I sort of took it upon myself because he had just entered the business and he would lost a bunch of money and he got completely fucked. And so I sort of took it upon myself to kind of try to get down to the bottom of it as his friend who's in the business. And so we um, we spent some time trying to figure it out. We then got busy, and then you know in a, in another insane full circle moment. But I had found out two years later that the same con artist that fucked him over in 2017 was now pretending to be me and trying to fuck other people over. And so I decided at that point that I had to do something about this. And so yeah. I, I went and I, um, I was a huge fan of this podcast called The Clearing that was out a few years ago. And so this journalist that created that, this guy named Josh Dean, um, I reached out to him and I was like, hey, I've got an idea for a true crime podcast. There's no ending to the story right now. I don't know where it's going to go, but this is what's been going on. And I just sort of unloaded this whole story on him. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, this is a fucking podcast. And so we spent last year making it. And um, throughout the course of making the podcast, you know, spoiler alert, if you're going to listen to the podcast, but we ended up catching the con artist ourselves while making the podcast. So we outed him and we released his name and identity and sure enough six days later we got an arrest in the uk so we ended up putting a a stop to the hollywood con queen once and for all and the podcast became a huge hit i mean we were we were number two on all the on the top apple charts for for eight days last year and we sat in the top 25 on apple for god probably two over two months and so you know of course lo and behold you know being in hollywood i had a bunch of people reaching out saying this would make a great television series as well, and so we uh, are in the middle of negotiations with uh, with a big streaming service to to make the scripted version of oh. the, the television show so it's been a it's been a crazy three- year journey on that project for me but um, but one of the most rewarding just because we I got to sort of play armchair detective yeah. and catch a bad guy and then now go make a show about it.
0: Dude, that's so badass, man. I fucking love it. I can't wait to check that out, man. And dude, fucking A, you know, man, your your father and your mother, and you you did such a great job, dude. You're an amazing (laughs) soul, Andy, and you're a true visionary and artist and Dude, I, I have a feeling, in, you know, five to ten years, one day we're gonna be at the Golden Globes together, laughing about the time you did my podcast twice. I really
1: hope so. I always, yeah. I always tell people, you know, for, I'm just getting started.
0: You know, yeah. we're
1: near where. I, oh, dude, close I can tell to where I want to get to. So, well, so, dude, uh, you know, I, I got you, a lot of things on the horizon.
0: You're a titan, and it means so much to me that you came on and, and shared your journey. And I know for everyone listening, it, it, it means the world too. And and I thank you for your service and thank you for all you do and thank you for getting yeah, stories getting made and dude to be continued
1: oh likewise buddy i mean thank you for what you do too i've been listening to your podcast too for the past few weeks you know as we we're as i was gearing up oh, for this and the and, uh, conversations you have with people are, are amazing so you're you're crushing on this thing too and i'll do what i can to help support your podcast too and get the word out there and um and yeah i'm excited for for part two we'll figure it out
0: soon dude all my love, brother. Enjoy 4th yeah, of July. You, All right, man. Yeah, a I'll talk to All you All right, soon. dude. Much yeah, love. Bye-bye. Peace. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.